Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Spliff Podcast. I'm actually recording this one early uh, because of the holidays, of course, and during the daytime, so it's going to be a little noisy again. My turtle's moving about, the trash is going, traffic is insane, and I'm really glad that I am fully stocked up on my happy pills because I already need them. But that's another story. Moving on, we're going to get straight through this one. We're talking about indica and sativa today. So actually, no, maybe I think my happy pills will definitely work their way back into this conversation. I'm not going to lie. But first, we're going to move into stoner moments where I discuss some of the things that I forgot to touch on in my last episode Uh, I did mention that research on topical application is not really up to par, and I do want to say that part of the problem is, of course, it's Schedule 1 listing. Uh, Research in general on cannabis is pretty narrow, and when you're fighting a drug war, most of your research isn't going to be about its lotion use. It's going to be about its drug use. It's psychoactive inducing effects. So that is where most of its research lies. Uh, Let's see here. Oh, right. Uh, You know, there's some things that you just can't fix in post. And there are a couple of times where I said intravenous and I wanted to kick, no, I did kick myself in the butt. I know it's intravenous. It's intravenous. Intravenously, not intravenous but tell it to my brain because I can't uh, on a regular basis. I had my coffee early today, though. I woke up really early to go to yoga, and that might not be my thing. Uh, I'm still working on it. It was the first time. Uh, But let's see here. Oh, one more thing. I discussed briefly about cannabis as a lubricant, and it's something that I touch on every now and then throughout my... uh, my, my podcast, but I want to just give a couple more notes on it since I kind of like quickly jumped into the fact that its use may be psychoactive inducing uh, if it gets in the rectal area. Vaginally, it is not going to be psychoactive inducing. You shouldn't get high. You still may get that relaxed feeling. You may get a lot of uh, blood flow to the area. I mean, that's kind of part of the point, right? So you should feel changes, but you shouldn't feel stoned. Uh, if your partner is going down on you that is performing cunnilingus, they could very well get stoned. So that is a precaution that I wanted to throw out there. Uh, it's a lot of fun to play with. Uh, still not condom safe, but vaginally you can totally use it without worrying about drug testing or anything like that. All right. Okay. Let's move into the good stuff. Indica versus sativa and a little honorable mention for hybrids. Now, I'm going to open up by discussing a question that was posed to me by a listener of the podcast, my friend Kim. She said that she was told indicas and sativas that the way that you can tell is that indica buds are short and dense, whereas sativa buds are kind of long and fluffy. And that is not true. That is not true at all. Uh, There are certain characteristics that belong to 
predominantly indica-leaning plants and sativa-leaning plants if you are a grower. So there are characteristics that you're going to need to know if you are someone who actually wants to grow their own weed or grow on a large scale uh, or characteristics to expect when growing. Sativas can be very tall and lanky and indicas can be very stout and and thick-leaved. They have different leaves. But in general, the buds that come off of them are going to be completely dependent on their growth experience. So if it was too hot, it will affect them. If it was too humid, it will affect them. If they didn't get the right nutrients, the buds will be affected. All of those factors and variables uh, make it to where when you are actually looking at the bud, just by looking at it, you can't tell if it's an indica or a sativa. So don't buy into that BS at all, okay? Okay, so how can you tell an indica versus a sativa when you're in a dispensary and maybe they aren't sure or you just really want to be as informed as possible when you make your decision? Uh, Well, the way to do that is through smell. And the thing that is responsible for the smell of cannabis, the reason why some smells like hay, whereas others smells like pineapple, are the terpenes. The more terpenes that are present, the more aromatic the cannabis is going to be. And the cannabis's aroma can actually change based on a lot of other factors. It is a volatile substance, the terpenes. They're hydrocarbon chains, and they, uh, according to scientists, are volatile. And I didn't actually look that up. What I'm assuming, based on my experience, is that they're prone to change, uh, very active change and very radical change. So, And you can tell that when you leave your weed in a bag and all of a sudden it loses all of its flavor. But then when you begin to crunch it up, it actually starts to release an aroma again. It's the same thing that you would get if you threw a stick of cinnamon on a frying pan and heated it up or did that with pepper or when you get a pepper grinder and you actually grind it up and it releases its aroma much more fragrantly than it would if you had just thrown some pepper kernels on there or if you used a traditional table pepper that had been sitting out for a while cannabis reacts very much the same way. Uh, Now, terpenes are a relatively newer development in the way of cannabis, according to the workshop's Jeff Rabber. They uh, say that they began testing for terpenes, that they were the first to begin testing for terpenes in 2011, and I have no reason to doubt them on that. They... uh, are very nice gentlemen and are well-educated. SC Labs out here tends to be one of the big players as well, and Steep Hill. And I can't honestly say for sure who started doing it first. But I will say that I love the workshops terpene testing the most. And they make it really easy to, to look at the results and to make sense of them which can be kind of difficult to do because there are so many of them. There are so many options for these terpenes. And, you know, understanding how they all work together is something that is going to take a while. It's kind of like mapping the human genome 
and the workshop has absolutely been leading the way on that cause. They may have their own financial interests at stake at the end of it, but I absolutely believe that their heart is in the right place. And more importantly than that, their science is in the right place, which I fully respect. Now, why is it so important that we know what these terpenes are? I mean, if we know that there's THC or CBD in it and you know, how much THC is in there or CBD is in there. Isn't that enough? Isn't that what's going to get me high or what's going to lower my anxiety or what's going to stop the seizures? And uh, the truth is that no, that is not the only thing. There is a pharmaceutical out there that is called Marinol or Drobinol, if I've said that correctly. And it is 100% THC. And in clinical trials, it was shown to perform exactly like THC, like very consistently with THC. However, in practical application, it did not produce the desired effects in nearly the same consistency that cannabis did. And the major reason for that is because it didn't have the terpenes. Uh, The cannabinoids and the terpenes work together to direct your system. Now, they work that way in our body and they work that way in the plant. They work that way to uh, talk to each other, scientists believe. They are probably regulating the hormones that are in the plant and they uh, help protect the plant. They are natural antibiotics, antifungals, anti-molds, natural insect repellents. But because these substances are so volatile and because we don't necessarily understand how the plant is using them for themselves, we don't really always understand how the plant then is translated to us. And I think that it's really important to understand the way that these things work together, the synergistic effects of the cannabinoids and the terpenes in the cannabis plant, because I think that will unlock a lot of secrets and how it applies to us as well. That's just a hunch, just a hunch to go on. Now, that brings me to another question that I want to go into really quickly that I was going to do later, but let's just do now. My friend Heather in Colorado, who is a non-partaker, but an interested non-partaker, uh, she likes to stay educated. And this is, of course, a very provocative topic and really relevant to her geographical location. So she asked me if it was possible to get high by sprinkling weed on food. And I told her no. I like laughed it off. Like it was over typing and I just gave her like, I only had time for a quick answer. And my basic answer is like, no, that's not going to make you high. And on second thought, thinking of her particular situation, I kind of had to go back and rethink that because it, it got me thinking. I was like, okay, well, when would you sprinkle weed on food? And what kind of food would you use? And then, of course, my brain went straight to pizza. And I was thinking if you had like an old bag of weed that you had found and it was super dried up and it already practically looked like oregano anyway, and you just sprinkled it on some pizza, would it get you high? And then I was like, well, if I have pizza, of course, it's going to be pepperoni and that's going to up the oil factor. So if it's already dry, old weed and it sits on a really oily pizza 
And I have not a whole lot of experience with edibles or weed in general. I actually might feel kind of stoned off of that. So I had to write her back and be like, you know what? I am amending my answer. And there are a lot of variables that you need to think of. If you try and just eat that weed out of the bag, again, you might have a little body relaxation, uh, but you aren't probably getting a whole lot of THC past that blood-brain barrier because it didn't really uptake through your intestines and get metabolized properly through your liver. But if you start adding in fatty foods, uh, oily foods, alcohol-laden drinks, you're going to up the chances of actually getting all of that through your system and into your bloodstream. And if you're especially sensitive, it could be a really easy way to mellow into an edible experience for you. So I had to, I had to take my foot out of my mouth on that one and then put it right back in because that's where it belongs. Now, if you're putting your dried weed on your pizza, uh, are you just getting muscle relaxation? Well, some of that's going to depend. Does your dry weed still have a lot of smell to it? Maybe it's fresher weed. So it, uh, it does have a lot of smell to it, but it hasn't been in the sun very long. It hasn't been in the air very long. So it hasn't decarboxylated very much. Well, you might be actually getting some cannabinoid uptake from the acidic form, uh, depending on how you're using it. And you're probably experiencing something from the extra terpenes that are available to you. Uh, but you probably aren't going to feel overall stoned out of the experience because you didn't have that THC metabolizing in your system. But let's say you do have terpenes. Um, it can make you feel kind of energized and buzzed and a little focused, a little hyper-focused maybe. It could make you feel kind of relaxed. And we would describe those differences as sativa versus indica. Because there is such a wide array of terpenes and terpene combinations, terpenoid combinations, terpene and cannabinoid combinations, and maybe a bunch of things that we don't even actually understand yet that are included in the process of what cannabis does, uh, there isn't a really great way to understand indica versus sativa. It's kind of an antiquated classification system that we are desperately holding on to when we need so much more. But we don't have the research. We don't have the science. The workshop is doing a great job of accumulating a lot of data and sharing that data from what I understand, which is going to be vital to us really getting a bigger picture. But there's so much proprietary grab and all of this new uh, old West style nascent industry nonsense that uh, the, the camaraderie that is experienced in a lot of cannabis subculture gets a little lost when you start talking about business. And 
And then that's going to lead me to kind of pick on the workshop a little bit right now. And I don't mean to pick on them because they're the worst or they're, uh, they're so bad because uh, there's a lot of dirty deeds being done around uh, these, these parts. But I pick on them because I hold them to such high standards and because they hold themselves to such high standards. Um, but I did mention that they, they have this financial interest behind it. And I believe what uh, that is, and it's hard to find actual proof of this on the internet, but from connections that I've had in the industry, what I understand is the workshop is in some way related to clear concentrates, which are a CO2 refined uh concentrate that is used mostly for vaporization and then is refined with terpene codes that are based on the workshop's research, which is a brilliant idea. Uh, The problem is that they don't seem to work the same way. They've got that white flower thing about them, right? Uh, That refined uh, nonsense that just doesn't seem to uptake as well. And what most stoners are doing is because the clear concentrates are so high in THC, they because they can extract pure THC, basically, they can create these really high cannabinoid profiles. And so you can get clear concentrate in like 87 percent THC. And then stoners are taking part of that clear concentrate and then they're mixing it with a BHO shatter or pull and snap or a pentane or a hexane that already has a lot of natural terpenes to it. Uh, Because the way that it works, uh, from my understanding, is the BHO, the butane or the pentane or hexane gases that are used are much more Uh, similar to the cannabis plant than, say, using a heat source and decarboxylating it, activating it in the process of extracting it is. And uh, Jeff Robert absolutely pushes the idea that that keeping medicine as close to cannabis as possible is absolutely the direction to go in. And unfortunately, to quote uh, something that he said on Cannabis Insider, uh, which was a great podcast, don't get me wrong, but uh, I did have my moments of pause, if you will. Uh, It it can kind of go back and forth with him on, oh, refined works, it's uh, a molecule is a molecule. And, uh, and, and then saying, oh, well, we need to keep this as close to its uh, true identity as possible, because that's the real key. This is the part where me and science get a little disagree. Uh, people like Jeff Rabber are looking towards refining cannabinoids with terpenes. To me, that is the enriched uh, white flower of cannabis. It is taking it all down, making its bare minimum and saying, oh, we'll put all that good stuff back together. It's just minerals. It'll work. And we know that that doesn't work nearly as well, that our body doesn't uptake it. All right. And let's just say that our body doesn't accept it the same way. And that there are effects to that. And I feel that there is the same issue when it comes to if you bake something out, putting something back into it doesn't quite work the same way. So I'm a little wary of more refined processes. 
So I think for now, I'm going to stick with BHOs, pentanes, and hexanes, because to me, they're a truer form, and too much THC just makes me cough anyway. I don't really care for the clear concentrates. They're just, just uh, man, really expansive is the term. They get in your lungs, and it's like your lungs have blown up like balloons, and your skin is super raw on the inside, and you're never going to make it right again. Um, but topically, I really enjoyed them. It's actually one of the things that got me really thinking about using concentrates on my skin was because I was like, you know, this is really potent stuff, but I don't enjoy vaporizing it at all. I wonder if it would do well on uh, some areas on my skin that I'm concerned about. And in, I think the first podcast, I mentioned that I'd used it on a mole, uh, concentrate that is, or cannabis topically on a mole, and that I had had a benign lump on my shoulder. And, you know, I, I put them in both of those places and I found uh, a promising results, nothing definitive, but promising results. And I attribute the fact that it didn't work super successfully to my inability to keep the cannabinoids in those areas for a long enough period. So that's really just me being lazy. Um, but it does leave some questions too. I mean, I do like to use cannabis topically, especially cannabis concentrate topically in the most recent weeks, but for a longer period of time, topical lotions. And there can be a difference in the overall effects of maybe a cannabis-infused lavender lotion or using olive oil as a base versus a vitamin E as a base, which is another essential oil, versus coconut oil as a base. The way that the cannabinoids and the terpenes work with all of those things together is going to vary. So you're really going to get varied effects from each one. Uh, now, with the transdermal application, of course, the terpenes seem to greatly affect the overall side effects that you're getting from its usage. But in most lotions and salves and balms and things of that nature, topical effects usually are moderate. When I have used cannabis concentrates, terpene effects are very mild. I don't actually experience really anything from the concentrates that I have found. Though I might say that I found a slight difference in using an indica concentrate on say muscle pain versus a sativa concentrate. Also using a sativa concentrate on a headache versus using an indica concentrate, but not enough that one would stop me over the other at this point in in how I'm using that and in my access and availability and, and other factors like that. It doesn't make enough of a difference. Uh, I've been getting a lot of sinus headaches lately with the winds here in Southern California. And so the other night I actually, it, my brain just started vicing on me behind my eyes and above the bridge of my nose. And I put two little dabs of wax right above my eyebrows uh, in between my eyebrows and my temples pretty much and I just let them sit there and the headache just melted away I didn't even have to smoke any more weed the headache just melted away I was so happy 
but I can't say that I had a sativa effect off of it or an indica effect off of it. I couldn't even tell you which one I used for the concentrate. So topically, I'm not sure that they, re- that they meaning terpene specifically, really matter unless you're using a transdermal. But that's not to say that if you are heating up your cannabis, let's say maybe for edibles, that you are actually getting rid of all of the terpenes. These terpenes have different boiling points. And so when you are making your concentrate, your coconut oil, so to speak, or if you're using a more concentrated form of cannabis that you've extracted, maybe with some ethanol alcohol, Uh, there are going to be different terpenes that are kept with those different solvents. Uh, Just because there are different bonds made too, and they require different heating elements. So what you actually end up taking in that end product and then putting into your edibles and then maybe heating up again if you're doing that gets translated into its overall effects. If you are heating out all of your terpenes, but you've left all of your cannabinoids or a high amount of cannabinoids, you're probably going to get more of that Marinol-like effect, that heavy muscle sedation, but not a whole lot of anything else. Does any of this help you understand indica versus sativa yet? Because I really feel that I've just talked about terpenes. And I'm not worried about that because you have to understand terpenes before you can understand indica versus sativa. So now that you've understood what these compounds are and they're going to be really smelly, uh, then we know that cannabis is really, really smelly. If you are the kind of person who, when you smell cannabis, it just smells like weed to you, you're going to need a buddy. You're going to need a really good bud tender, honestly, and you're going to need to work on developing your your flavor retention. Uh, it is a little bit like wine uh, in the sense that there's a lot of complexity and a lot of flavors and being interested in those things really helps you pull them out. Uh, luckily, cannabis smells so much that it's it's helped you as much as it can. And the more testing that we do on terpenes, the less you're going to have to worry about doing it yourself. Hopefully, we begin to understand the way that things work. But again, people are so different and there's such a wide range of uh, acceptable responses that knowing which one you're going to be straight off the bat isn't the easiest thing to do. So take it slow. All right. Indicas. No, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with the land race strains first. A land race strain is again, mostly important to just growers. However, They are strains of cannabis that have become native to geographic locations. So certain cannabis strains became native to Indonesia and the way that they were cultivated, they became known as sativas. They were very cerebral. They were very stimulating. Uh, Let's see here. Cannabis that was became native to places that were north of that, um, now, let's say the lower parts of Russia, uh, those are known as ruderalis. And the ones that uh, were more popular in northern parts of India, lower than Russia, 
if I'm remembering this correctly, became known as Indicas. Now, Indica is really just a reference to the fact that it's from India. And it became really more popular as a pharmaceutical reference uh, for hashish that was specific to India because it was the most potent form of hashish before American pharmacists were able to unlock the Indian's method of uh, extracting the, the resinous material into their own potent hashish, basically until they learn how to make some hash. When it comes down to indica versus sativa, it's really about our, uh, our discovery of them, who discovered them, and where they became native. So early on in cannabis prohibition, uh, after Nixon and the Controlled Substances Act, some very smart breeders realized that the stability of these strains was not promised and that there were particular strains that were much more stable than others. And they went about collecting those strains in order to create breeding projects and in order to preserve those land race strains and their genetics. And thank God for the foresight of those people. That was a really, really smart move. Now, in the land race strains, most of them are going to be classified as sativas. Uh, I think there's like Durbins, there are Ties, uh, I think Haze. I think Haze is a mix that came out later, but most Hazes are going to be sativa-leaning. And then there's like one Indica, which is Kush. When you get Kushes, they will tend to be more indica They can still be mixed with sativas and other sativa terpenes. The way that they are grown can affect their stability. If it stresses them out, they may be signaling out to other plants. And if they're signaling out to other plants, maybe that's when they turn sativa. Uh, Maybe when they're trying to like party, that's when they start to, uh, to get all stimulated. And maybe when they're just really chill and cold and dark, they kind of retreat. They get a little turtle-like and they mellow out. And that's when they make indica. We don't fucking know. That's just a story I made up. But it could work. Uh, So cushes will be good if you're looking for a relaxing, full-body, low-anxiety mood, I would usually suggest cotton candy kush, something that's very floral. Uh, Lavenders are really good as well. That's another mix. Uh, If you're looking for a sativa, and oh, and I should say what kush smells like, I guess, right? That's the problem. Kush is, is earthy. And earthy has a lot of variants around it. Earthy to me can also be an OG Kush, which does not tend to lean indica in most places. It is a hybrid. And in my experience, it tends to lean sativa. It tends to lean in a way that I don't prefer and is anxiety inducing for me. But I've also come across OG Kushes that are very, very heavy in the body, uh, aren't very sleepy, but just produce a lot of couch lock, which we also express as indica. So to me, when I say indica, I am thinking neurodepressant, whether that's in the body, whether that's in the mind, it is a depressing of the neurostimulus, the the connections that are going on, of the neuroactivity 
that uh, is being produced and that's what's going to help you sleep. That's what's going to lower anxiety. That's what's going to help uh, lower those seizures, that, that variable between THC and CBD and THCA and which strain works best all comes down to the terpenes. It doesn't come down to whether you understand it as an indica or a sativa. It comes down to whether or not we understand what terpenes are present and how to apply them best. So uh, on the other side of that coin, you have sativas, which are going to be most of them. And those aren't going to be neurostimulants, whether it's in the body or whether it's in the mind, there's going to be a rush of neural activity. That's great for depression. That's great for uh, certain body issues that, uh, that go on. It's great for headaches and migraines. It can also be great for anxiety if the key to unlocking your anxiety is a change of perspective. It's great for inducing that creativity, that that inspiration. I, I read a great essay about uh, the word and the etymology of inspiration and how it means to breathe in creativity and how cannabis smoking is breathing in. And I can't remember what book it was and I can't remember what dude wrote it, but it was really, really eloquent and it's always stuck with me. You are inspiring creativity when you breathe in cannabis, even when you aren't burning it. If you just grind up your cannabis and release the aromatic fragrance that is there, you will get an indica or a sativa effect depending on the terpenes. If it is really floral, again, uh, then you're going to get some relaxation just the way you would if you had a lavender stick and or a lavender flower and you crushed it up and released the lavender or stuck it under your pillow. That's what I do. I have a lavender wand under my pillow. So even if the the dabs that I do at night before I go to bed don't help me go to sleep. I know that flooding my system with cannabinoids and using that lavender wand under my pillow to help me sleep really has a significant effect. My body responds to the terpenes that are around me. That's just the way our body responds to essential oils. Uh, I, I think that cannabis is going to do amazing things for teaching science that you can't take the soul out of science, that there's that there's still an element of spirituality uh, that, that needs to be addressed in medicine. And I, I really look forward to seeing that in my lifetime. I think they're they're headed in the right direction, Western Western medicine, that is slowly. Uh, you know, it's really funny to uh, to see geographically that Indicas and sativas are are favored in in certain places over others. I'm not sure how it is in Colorado, but or Washington or any of the other wonderful medical states or recreational legal states. Uh, but in California, sativas are favored in the north, and indicas are favored in the south. Uh, OG Kush still tends to be an indica. And a lot of things are misclassified across the board. But when it comes to patient preference, people who are in the South getting a bunch of sun still just want to be chilled, relaxed. They want the indicas. And the people who are in the North who maybe have a little bit more fog and clouds, a little bit more rain, 
they tend to to travel towards the sativas to lift their depression. And uh, just, I, I, I really look forward to the studies that are done on patient preference, on people's preference, and, and how we can apply that just to a greater understanding of people in general, really, and what affects our lives. Oh, man. So... I hope that uh, you have gotten out of this podcast a, a, a greater confusion because that's basically what's out there. Uh, I hate to break it to you. So let's, let's try and make it concise here, Bo. Okay. If you want full body relaxation with no cerebral stimulation, you want a full bodied indica lean towards cushions. If you want full cerebral stimulation and full body stimulation lean towards diesels. These are not fast and resolute. And I would like to give you more information on specific terpenes, but I think we're going to have to do that on another episode, unfortunately. Now, what you're going to actually experience in the real world is that you're going to have body relaxation with uber-focused mental stimulation, or you're going to have a full cerebral depression with uh, a body tingling and activeness, or you're going to get some cerebral activity that takes you in a creative, unfocused state, and full body relaxation that makes you not want to leave the couch and just play guitar, perhaps. That's called a hybrid, and that is what most things are. So if you are looking for indica versus sativa, and you want to know more about your cannabis, ask your bud tender or your local dispensary for a terpene profile. The more patients who ask for it, the more likely dispensaries are to put it on their roster. Patients and patient demand are, are what drive these things more than politics do in the end. So, you know, even if you are in a really politically restrictive state, spread that awareness and, and know that in places that are less politically restrictive, people there are also spreading awareness and demanding it. And those people are going to help lead the way to a better understanding. Oh, man. All right. So let's safety. I think uh, for this magic moment, I'm going to smoke on some chem dog, which is a wonderful sativa dominant blend that is one of the parents for sour diesel. It has a very earthy, piney smell to it. And it can also produce a very gasoline smell, which is true to the diesel name. Uh, no, yeah, there's just so much to talk about when it comes to indica versus sativa. I know that I'm going to have to do more. I'm not going to be happy with this at all. Uh, so I'll probably have more in the next podcast. I think in the next podcast, we're going to do a little bit more indica versus sativa because I didn't talk about my happy pills or versus my sleepy pills yet. And I haven't talked about the naming and the importance of that when you're looking for specific genetics and understanding what's available to you and why keeping these ridiculous stoner names that are attributed to uh, a lot of the strains is actually vitally important to understanding 
how they are applied to you. So if you aren't satisfied with all the answers that you got in this podcast, don't worry. We're going to have more podcasts coming. But for now, we're just going to smoke a bowl and talk about the sea vault. Cheers. All right. Now the sea vault is a uh, container that is specifically made for cannabis. I believe the sea in sea vault is for cannabis, uh, but I don't know that for sure. And it's pretty cool. It has a specific slot in the lid that is meant to hold a Bovida pack, which we talked about in, I think, podcast number two, if I remember correctly. It is a two-way humidity pack that helps regulate the humidity of your cannabis to make sure that it is always at the perfect smoking texture and presence. Uh, I'm sure there's a better way to have worded that, but carry on. Uh, And the Seaval itself is made out of stainless steel, so there is no light that is getting into it, and it's double insulated, so it's pretty impervious to a lot of the uh, moderate temperature changes that go on in a day, uh, especially in a room, or maybe in your purse. And that's where I found the Sea Vault works best for me as a travel buddy. I don't use it a whole lot in my daily routine. I use uh, mason jars primarily because they're really easy to get into. They hold a bovita pack. They can hold a lot of weed. I can see what it is. I can mark it up with my marker if I want to. And oh yeah, and it's really easy to get into. Now the Sea Vault has uh, these three clips on it that make it a little bit harder to get into, but actually create a really great seal. It is really well engineered. And I love to take it with me when I'm on a plane or if I'm traveling on a road trip or if I'm visiting family and need to make sure that I have a, a good stash of weed. Uh, and it, it's really, really durable. I haven't had any problem taking it through security. It actually hides the contents, I believe, and, and just shows up as a container. So that hasn't been any problem. It is airtight in its seal, so it's smell-proof. So I can keep it in my purse, and even though my purse usually smells like weed anyway because my pipe's going to be in there too, the uh, container of weed itself does not, which is great because I can take a lot of weed with me and not have to worry about smelling like a weed plant, uh, which I have absolutely done. I currently have, I think it's the... I think it's the smallest version. I don't actually know the dimensions that I have, but it holds, depending on the density of the cannabis, about a half, between 10 and 16 grams of cannabis, uh, which is a great travel buddy for me. Um, but again, uh, it's it's not my everyday go-to. However, if you need something that uh, is going to do well in a hot apartment or in a very sunny home, then the Sea Vault is a great way to protect the integrity of your cannabis. Uh, they've done some testing on it that shows that cannabinoids are able to remain stable in the Sea Vault for up to six months. And I believe that's opening, I don't remember how often they open the container, if they open the container at all, Um, but how often you open your sea vault will affect its overall control. And I do have to say one of the things too that tend to make me gravitate more towards the mason jars than the sea vault 
is the smell that is retained within the the cannabis itself. Uh, the mason jar just seems to really release a more aromatic fragrance when I open the jar, and that means a lot to me. I can't say that I get a better high out of it, but it's just so much more satisfying. Whereas the sea vault, when I open it up, doesn't seem to be as aromatic. Now remember, those terpenes are volatile, and if I have my cannabis in a mason jar that's, you know, uh, accepting light that is going to then be responding to heat changes and things like that. It's going to heat up those terpenes and they're going to be changing. So you should expect it to smell more. Um, but that hasn't changed my mind at all. It's just really refreshing. And it's kind of like holding in my bong load. It's something that I know I don't have to do, but I really enjoy it. And you know what? That's not entirely true because with the fragrance, you can prime your body and your senses to receive the cannabinoids before you ever introduce cannabinoids into your system by smelling that, that pot. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to indulge. I'm just going to enjoy it's going to be good. I'm going to go shove my head in a jar full of weed right now. So I got to go. I'll see you guys next time. We'll talk more about this indica versus sativa nonsense. And I hope you are having a great holiday if you're listening to this now and in the future, just a, a great fucking day period. Ciao for now.